This morning, we are turning to Jeremiah 29. So we've been traveling with Jeremiah for a few weeks now. And a lot of what we have covered in Jeremiah has been a little scary, a little dark, majorly unknown, and that changes when we come here to Jeremiah 29. Before we come to God's word, before we hear the words of Jeremiah this morning, let us, let us pray for the Spirit's presence with us this morning. Please pray with me. Spirit of the living God, you moved through the prophet Jeremiah, giving him words, leading him as, as God's prophet. We ask that you be present with us now this morning as we open the word that offers life and hope and strength. As we open to Jeremiah 29, listening for the voice of God. Be with us, be with us this morning. Open our hearts. Open our ears so that we may hear your word for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So before this is a word for us, it is first a word to the exiles um, from Judah who are in Babylon. So where we come into Jeremiah 29 here, this is Jeremiah's letter to the exiles who've just been hauled off from home and dropped in a foreign land. So that is where we pick up with Jeremiah this morning. So Jeremiah 29. And we're going to read uh, through verse 14. We're going to stop, stop there. So 1 through 14. So this is the word of the Lord. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people that Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now this was after King Jehoiakim and the queen mother, the court officials, the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the artisan had gone into exile from Jerusalem. So Jeremiah entrusted the letter to Elasa, son of Shaphan, and to Gamaliah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. Just in case he knew any of them, he wanted to drop those names in. The letter said, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I haven't sent them, declares the Lord. 
This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, you were listening to last week's children's message. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Did a piece of that scripture reading sound very familiar? Yeah? Jeremiah 29, 11, which is one of the most famous and beloved and often quoted scripture verses across the Christian world. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Given what we know about Jeremiah, given what we have learned about this prophet and his message from traveling with him for a few weeks now, the book of Jeremiah doesn't seem like this verse should belong to it. It doesn't seem like we should find this verse in the book of Jeremiah, because it doesn't seem like the prophet Jeremiah is capable of something so uplifting, so happy. If you Google Jeremiah 29:11, you will scroll endlessly through image after image of kind of quote art, a scripty font of 29:11 against a multitude of backgrounds, a scripty font of verse 11 against a sunset over the mountaintops, or a forest path for the, I know the plans I have for you, or against a graduation scene because, you know, Jeremiah 29, 11 is the Christian version of Dr. Seuss's All the Places You Will Go. <laughs> this is where we go to when graduations come. You probably, some of you may have actually put this, like, bought a card and given it to a graduate this past month with 29:11 on it. But when you think about the prophet Jeremiah, when you think about what we have learned and read from his message, it doesn't really seem that he should fit on a Pinterest board, somewhere between how to make a crunchy taco casserole and how to do your own flower arrangement. This scripty version of 2911 doesn't seem to fit the tone and tenor of this prophet's particular preaching. And while we hear this verse with comfort and assurance, I mean, it's, it's basically wrapped up in it. It's a cozy verse. And that's why it's so popular and so beloved. The exiles who heard it for the first time, to whom it was written to, didn't really hear it that way. 
The exiles were not about to order a wall hanging from Etsy and, and put it up on their apartment wall in Babylon. It didn't have that meaning for them in the same way that it now carries that meaning for us. So before we kind of delve into our use of Jeremiah 29:11, this famous and beloved verse, let's just kind of take a step back for a little context and read, as we did read, a large part of the letter that verse 11 is a part of. A letter written by the prophet Jeremiah to a bunch of people who have just been ripped from their homes and placed in a foreign country. Exiles from the land of Judah, carried by King Nebuchadnezzar away from home, from temple, from their God. And among those in exile, they're the leaders. It's the government officials. So you have the king and his mother. You have government officials and leaders carried off. You have white-collar workers and the top innovators and entrepreneurs. And they're all forcibly removed from Judah and brought to Babylon through a strategic exile. This wasn't just about kind of displacing a whole bunch of people. This was about crippling the very economy, identity, and worship life of the people of Judah of the people of God. It's a very effective war tactic. Destroy your enemies by uprooting them and making them build a home somewhere else. And what's surprising, but also perhaps not surprising, is how surprised God's people are that this has happened to them. Because if nothing else we've learned from the prophet Jeremiah and what we've traveled with him so far is that this was his message again and again and again. People of God, God will lead you into exile. God will lead you into exile for your disobedience, for your covenant breaking. People of God, you will be led into exile. People of God, you're gonna be led into exile, repent. But even now it's too late, you're gonna be led into exile. And then they are and they look around going, wait. Wait, did that just happen? And they're surprised and dumbfounded. And so all of a sudden they're asking the question, well, how did we get here? Why did this happen? How long is this going to last? And they start looking for the answers to their questions. It is often the case after a, a major national tragedy or a big scandal that a bunch of people come out of the woodwork with a bunch of different answers. Same thing happens here after the exile. You have prophets popping up all over the place. Prophet, prophets popping up in Babylon, talking to the exiles, saying, this is why God did this to you, or this is what's going to happen. You have prophets popping up back in Judah with those who were left behind and saying, this is what's going to happen to you. Here's why God did this to you. And one of, the, one of the big ones, one of the big prophets who popped up and gave an answer to the people was a man named Hananiah. Now, we don't hear about him in chapter 29, but in chapter 28, the chapter right before this, you have Hananiah standing before the people left behind in Judah and saying, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. And this is Hananiah's message to God's people. If you want to follow along, I'm looking at uh, chapter 28, verse 2 through 4. And this, Hananiah's message, is actually why Jeremiah writes his letter that we're looking at this morning. 
Hananiah says, I'm a prophet of the Lord God, and this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. That I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I will bring back to this place all the articles of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar took from us. I will also bring back to this place the king of Judah and all the other exiles who were carried off from Judah to Babylon. And not only that, declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. The exiles and those left behind were left with questions. What does life look like now? Why is this happening to us? How long will this last? And Hananiah brings in a word of defeat of your enemies. He brings a message of victory, of God coming to a swift rescue. And for a bunch of defeated and destroyed exiles, this this is a pretty good word. This, This gives them a particular share of optimism, right? Two years? Okay, that's hard, but we can do that. We, we can persist for two years. Well, we can do this. And then, if, if Lord Almighty is promising to defeat our enemies at the end of all of it, we can definitely wait two years to see that. Hananiah persuades a whole lot of people with his version of the story. Those who are in exile are starting to breathe a sigh of relief. Two years, okay. We'll be home in two years, okay. And those left behind are are able to say, okay, two years and they'll come home. Two years and they're coming back to us. It's a pretty good message. It's an optimistic message. Until this letter arrives. until a letter written by the prophet Jeremiah comes to the exiles in Babylon. And this letter brings a very different answer, tells a very different version of the story. From the very first sentence, the very first sentence of Jeremiah's letter, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. I carried into exile. While Hananiah was painting Nebuchadnezzar as the villain, the villain of the exile, the villain that God will defeat, Jeremiah reminds them that there's no villain here. There's there's no villain here except for perhaps their own hearts and their own disobedience to God's covenant. And that it was God who carried them into exile. As if the Babylonian king could steal God's people right from under God's nose. Nebuchadnezzar didn't do this to you. I carried you into exile. I, the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, And then the instructions, as if that wasn't a hard enough word, then the instructions come. Build houses, settle down, plant your gardens and eat what it produces, 
marry and have children, find wives and husbands for their children, your children. Make your home in Babylon, my people, because you're going to be there not for two years, you will be there for 70. 70 years, which is a nice round number. And it's also a number that ensures that the generation that was taken into exile will never see home again. It's a number that speaks of generations, not two years, not a quick stay or a temporary layover, but multiple generations. Your life is in Babylon now. Build homes, settle down, have your kids get married, plant your gardens, Make your life in Babylon, because you're not going to live to see your home again. And if that wasn't enough, God continues and instructs his people to pray. Not necessarily to pray for themselves, not to pray for their, their rescue, not to pray for their circumstances, but to pray for their enemies, to pray for their captors, to pray for the ones who did this to them. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. That's a punch to the gut. Hananiah promised them revenge. Hananiah promised them defeat of their enemies. Hananiah promised them they'd be home really soon. And Jeremiah says, pray for your captors. You're going to be living with them for a while. Settle down. And then we come to 29.11. Then we come to verse 11. So right after God has said, after 70 years of life in Babylon, I will come to you Fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. And here's verse 11. In all of this, for I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. I don't think the exiles were going to cross-stitch Jeremiah 29, 11 onto throw pillows for their sofas. Just a guess. Verse 11 mentions hope and a future. But nothing about Jeremiah's letter to them felt like hope or a future especially not when compared to Hananiah's promises. For I know the plans I have for you, plans to promise to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. There's been a lot of pushback on our overuse of this verse in recent years. There's been a lot of Christian articles and blog posts written 
about Jeremiah 29.11. With titles like, and these, these two are real titles, Stop Taking Jeremiah 29.11 Out of Context! Exclamation point. And I don't think Jeremiah 29.11 means what you think it means. And there's been pretty big backlash against our love of this verse, our comfort found in this verse. And, and the backlash to Jeremiah 29.11 seems to be a backlash against an optimistic reading of the verse, an overly optimistic reading of the verse. The kind of reading where when you're hurting or you're going through something difficult and someone quotes Jeremiah 29.11 at you, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, all the while you're thinking, no, I'm pretty harmed right now. I ain't feeling that. The kind of reading of Jeremiah 29.11 that slaps a smile on your face and says, don't worry, it'll all work out. Life will turn out the way you want it to. You'll get your best life now because that's what God wants for you. He wants you to have the life you've always wanted. This, whatever this is, it's just a bump in the road. It'll straighten out soon. Hold on tight. Things will turn around. Jeremiah 29.11. Does it always straighten out? Does life always go as you planned? Has it for you? Do you slap a smile on and say, okay, it'll work out. Anyone who has wrestled with pain or loss or difficulty in life, whatever that looks like, knows that that kind of religious optimism can be deeply burdensome and it proves easily untrue. That kind of triumphant religious optimism sounds far more like the message of Hananiah and his fellow prophets with their quick fixes and their easy answers and their immediate rescue from whatever it is that's currently harming you. In that sense, I think the pushback against our use and love of Jeremiah 29.11 is justified, even deserved. From what we know of the prophet Jeremiah so far, is this a man of easy optimism? Is this a prophet of quick fixes and easy answers? Or have we been reading 29.11 like it's coming out of the mouth of Hananiah more than the mouth of Jeremiah? How do we understand verse 11? What does it mean?
while on vacation a couple weeks ago. Brian and I got a chance to worship in, um, in a congregation that I served a few years ago as pastor. And because Brian was preaching, I got to just go and connect with people and check up on people and uh, give hugs and hear stories and share life with people that I shared life with uh, for a brief moment in my ministry. And there was one couple that I was looking forward to seeing especially. This couple um, took me in and treated me like one of their kids um, and gave me a home when I had to live away from my home, away from Brian for uh, half the week. It was a distant uh, congregation from where I lived. So they took me in. They made space in their home for me. And I love this couple. <laughs> They're a retired couple who open their homes to strangers, um, who just have a full and beautiful life that they happily welcome anyone into. So I was looking forward to seeing them, looking forward to seeing how they're doing, hearing about their two poodles. And after hugs, after checking in with me how I was doing, meeting Rosie for the first time, this couple shared that their life had actually been upended in the past year. Because about a year ago, a little shy of a year ago, they learned that he had cancer. They were aggressive, their doctors were aggressive, they got in there, there was operations and chemo and doctor stays and hospital visits, radiation and everything they could do. But they had just found out the week that I saw them that despite all that effort, all of that aggressive intervention, it didn't take. And no surgery, or chemo or anything was gonna manage it or make it go away. Unexpectedly, in the midst of a very full and beautiful life, death was on the horizon for them. Unexpectedly, they found themselves preparing to say goodbye to each other far earlier than either of them ever imagined. And unexpectedly, this couple found themselves with shattered plans and a shattered future. Whatever was ahead for them was not what they had expected, what they had desired, what they had planned for. For I know the plans I have for you Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. What does that verse mean in their lives right now? What does Jeremiah verse 11 mean for them right now? Does it tell them just not to worry? That God's got this worked out, that there's going to be recovery, miraculous healing, and your future's returned to you because God has that plan for you? That your future is his future? Does Jeremiah give us a religious optimism that says the life we want is the life we get? It doesn't. It doesn't. And to say so is it disingenuous? 
and it belongs more to the dreams and the fantasies of prophets like Hananiah peddling a false religious optimism, masquerading as faith. Jeremiah 29.11 is not an easy and uncomplicated word of don't worry. Everything will work out just like you planned. The exiles can tell you that. Those who first read this letter could correct that notion quite easily. Jeremiah 29 pointed the exiles then and us now to the undeniable fact that whatever comes our way, whatever happens, whether it's a result of our disobedience like it was for the exiles or whether it comes as a result of living in a broken world with disease and heartbreak, that God does not break relationship with us, that God does not leave us even for a moment, that God doesn't walk away from us even when we deserve it. What is God saying in Jeremiah verse 11? What is God saying? Think when you hear it in the context of this letter to the exiles. God is whispering, trust me. Trust me. Even when you do not understand, trust me. It's an invitation to relationship. It's an invitation to trust. It's an invitation to faithful living, even in the midst of what you don't understand. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Wherever you are, in whatever circumstances, don't waste away thinking about that preferred future. Live faithfully in the one you have. Live faithfully trusting in God's future. As I prayed with and listened to this couple facing this unexpected future in their lives, I was struck by their trust. I understood their anger. I felt it with them. But I was dumbfounded at their trust. It was hard-earned and not easy wasn't flippant or optimistic. They knew what was ahead for them. It was a trust that was built on promises and covenant, not on dreams and lies. And so this couple continues to garden together in the time that they have. They make delicious meals together. They play with their grandkids and, and talk with their children. They go to worship faithfully on Sunday morning and pray together and laugh 
They don't know the future ahead of them. But they trust the one who holds their future, even when they don't understand. That's the heart of Jeremiah's letter to a bunch of exiles far from home. That's the heart of Jeremiah 29, verse 11 for us this morning. It is not shallow optimism that's handed to us in this verse. It is a message of hope and deep trust and an invitation to live in relationship with the one that we can trust, even when we don't understand. For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our God of the past, present, and future, wherever we are in life, whatever we face, whether we are in times of joy or times of challenge, times of hope or times of darkness, we hold on to you, to your promises for us in your Son, Jesus Christ. May we hold on to that hope, knowing that you do have plans for us, that your future can be trusted, even when we don't understand. It's in the strong name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.